Okay, Luke chapter 15. So, some months ago, I was, uh, uh, many months ago, I was deep in this uh, historical journey into Jewish culture and customs. And uh, it all started with, um, well, it, it all started with uh, just uh, preparing to uh, teach through the book of Esther. But I just got consumed with it and uh, just was uh, learning all sorts of amazing and wonderful things that were causing me to think about all sorts of other things. And so in the process of uh, preparing for Esther, I began to, I just kept on studying. And so I went on into the New Testament and I was looking at first century Judaism and all the things that are, in, are, you know, that are encompassed in that. And in the process of that, it just started to make me uh, marvel at some of the most familiar passages in Scripture and how uh, I could look at them in yet, you know, ways that I'd never thought of and see things that I haven't seen. And so I've been uh, anxious to be able to return to Luke 15 and to have the conversation we'll have tonight. So that's sort of where that comes from. So we're going to read, I'm going to read uh, this parable to you from Luke 15. So if you just want to sit there and listen and just, it's all familiar, but let's just listen. Maybe pray that God will give you fresh ears and then we'll, um, we'll take it apart. Luke 15, verse 11. Jesus speaking, he said, well, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to the father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the paws of the pig that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything to eat. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And he came and he drew near to the house and heard the music and the dancing. And he called one of the servants and he asked what all these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fatty calf because he, was, he has received his son back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. So his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, 
These many years I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when his son, when this son of yours comes home, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and to be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So, of all the teaching of our Lord that our Lord did in His earthly ministry, none has captured the attention and provoked such thoughts, the thoughts of men and women, more than His teaching in parables. The astonishing thing about Jesus' earthly ministry is that when you uh, look at the New Testament, you find that one-third of all of Jesus' words are in the form of parables. That an overwhelming amount of Scripture comes to us from Jesus in parables. And of all the parables that Jesus taught, none has captured the attention of mankind like the parable of the prodigal son. This is one of those, uh, all of Scripture is amazing and wonderful and unique. But if you've ever tangled with this parable, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. I have preached on this parable maybe more than any other text in Scripture. And I've never preached the same message. It's never come out the same way. You, you can never exhaust the facets of what's going on in this story. It's, it's got to be the most brilliantly told story that has ever been told and the most instructive story that has ever been told. And yet, it's brief we don't get a whole lot of detail, but the detail we get is, is shocking and thought-provoking. And if we're not careful, we might, you know, uh, take liberties that we're not meant to take with it. So this parable has rightly been called the pearl and crown of all parables. I mean, it's by far the most... Uh, known and taught parable. Yet, everyone who wrestles seriously with it ends up with a sense of awe at its inexhaustible content. You can at any time uh, go through this parable and, and, and preach a whole message on any one of the characters within the parable. You can look at the parable as a whole. You can pick it into parts. You can, uh, you know, you can uh, use it in so many different uh, ways to uh, just to cause us to think about things that we may have not otherwise thought of. Uh, you know, ironically, it's so familiar and so well known, and yet one of the most misunderstood places in Scripture. And maybe that's because um, when something is taught more than other, other things, there's a higher probability that it's going to be taught in error. But you would think that uh, familiarity would, would breed understanding. And yet, in this case, 
so many times uh, I hear people uh, teaching on the, the prodigal son and missing the point. So the principal aim of Jesus in this parable is not to teach us about the nature of sin or the ill effects and consequences of immoral living. The focus is the Father. Now you can learn things about sin and you can learn things about the ill effects of immoral living from this. But the problem is if you make that the driving scope of the message, if you make this parable to teach about these things, then you're going to miss the central point. And if you miss the central point, you've missed altogether and probably misapplied that which you have dealt with. Um, What should stand out to us like a giant neon sign is not the licentiousness of the son, but the love of his father in the midst of his rebellion. You see, it's very easy for us to read this story and to think about this prodigal son and to fixate on the son and all of the things that are occurring around the son. And we call this the prodigal of the parable son, the, the parable of the prodigal son. I don't even know why, because that's a horrible name for it, because it should not be named that at all. Because that's not what it's about. Uh, there is a son who is a prodigal in the story, but it's in no way the focus of the story. And so maybe just the fact that we refer to it that way, but if we referred to it maybe in a way that it would ought to be referred to, um, well, it would probably be politically incorrect or it would probably uh, in some way um, you know, it would just cause problems because uh, there's a lot more prodigal living going on in this story than just with this son. Now, simply put, the focus of the parable is the prodigal son's father, in whom we see an illustration of the infinite, unconditional, eternal, passionate, deeply affectionate love of God for sinners like you and me. Now what happens when we start to have the discussion we're about to have is that very quickly I'm going to run out of adjectives. I'm going to run out of uh, the capacity to... uh, rightly illustrate the things that I would like to illustrate. So what you have to think about is, is that when we move up to the, this parable, this parable is, uh, is it's like a diamond in that you can turn it any of a million ways and it will sparkle in a different, unique way with each view. And yet, in the midst of that, it's It represents the love of the Father. But even if we are able to grasp what we can grasp from the parable, we're only just sort of scratching the surface. In other words, if if God would would enable us to to see uh, what we are able to see tonight, it would be amazing. But when we left here, we should understand that all we did was just get a sniff, just the faintest whiff of the depth and the magnitude of the love of the Father because it is so unbelievable and so uh, unfathomable that you never can even begin to uh, grasp it. So what we're going to do is we're going to break this parable into chapters as if it was a long, drawn-out story. 
And by breaking it into five chapters, then we can sort of piece it together and begin to hopefully see what uh, we desire to see. So chapter 1 will be entitled, The Shameful Request. Verse 11, So there was a man, he had two sons. The younger of, the, of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And so the father divided the property between them. Now, the request of the younger son that his father give him his inheritance in advance may not be something that strikes us as being all that unusual. But I can assure you that under no circumstances was this permissible or approved of in Jewish culture, in the Jewish culture of the first century. So there will be multiple times through the course of this parable where had you have been standing there as a Jew hearing Jesus say this, you and everyone else standing there would have gasped at what was being said. Multiple times. It, was, it would have been so shocking that you could not have stood there and listened to this in silence. You would have literally gasped with, with just utter disbelief at what you were hearing. You see, in Jewish culture which was completely male-dominated, as you know. The inheritance was always transferred among the males. And the eldest male child would receive a double portion, which is what Elisha was asking for from Elijah, a firstborn portion. So if a man had two sons, then his property would have been, at his death, would have been divided into three equally divisible pieces, the eldest son would have got two-thirds and the youngest son would have got one-third. And that's how that would have worked. Now, all that you can read about in Deuteronomy 21 tells the, exactly how God's laid out the way all that will, will happen. But so here you have this younger son coming to the father and asking for his inheritance. Now, that in and of itself was uh, an utter reproach to his father and would have been completely uh, out of line and shocking, but doubly insulting would have been the demand of his share of the inheritance while the father was still alive. It was adding insult to injury. By asking his living father for his inheritance, essentially this was a declaration by the son that he no longer wanted to be associated with his family. Because this was the cutting of ties with his family. This was much more than a simple act of selfishness in order for him to do the things that he desired to do, no matter how wicked or sinful they may be. This was the disillusionment. This was the, the removal of himself from the family unit. Because by doing this, you were saying, I no longer want anything to do with you. You're all dead to me. I'm out of here. I'm finished with all of this. Basically, it was saying to the father, I wish you were dead. I've waited long enough, and you haven't died, and I'm not waiting anymore, so give me my inheritance and let me go on with my life. Now, this was a personal, direct, it was personal, direct, and hurtful to the father, and it was a clear statement that by this son, that what he wanted was the father's money and not the father. He was saying, you I'm not interested in. You see, he wasn't just saying that I want my money. 
You have to understand what's being communicated here. It's far more heinous than that. It's not only that I want my money, but I want my money and I do not want you. I don't want you. I don't want mom. I don't want my brother. I don't want anybody else affiliated with it. I don't want any of you. I only want my money at the expense of all of you. Now, as bad as that is, and it is bad, here's my question for you. My first sort of pause in all of this is all of the things the father could have said but didn't say. I wonder, for example, why didn't the father say, well, you're going to have to wait until I'm dead to get your inheritance. That's just the way it's going to be. That would have been a sensible thing to say, even in the face of such a uh, horrible uh, you know, act by a son. Why didn't he say, well, son, if it's some extra spending money that you need, let me help you out with some extra money uh, you know, so that you can carry yourself over. Or wouldn't it have been sensible for the father to say, well, I tell you what. Clearly, you know, you don't want me, and, and that's fine. I understand that. But this is your inheritance, and it, it is our uh, family's inheritance. So how about I give you a down payment on your inheritance? And if you're a good steward of the down payment, then in a time from now, I'll give you the rest of it. That would have been sensible. Or... He could have simply refused altogether and pleaded with his son to reconsider and to think about the consequences and the hurt that he was causing and the mistake that he was about to make. None of which the father did. Now my question for you is, what would happen if you did this in your context? Not one person here would do this. None of us would do this. Because to do this would be insanity. Every person that you know would tell you that you made a mistake, that that was absolutely poor judgment, that that was the worst possible way in which to respond to your son's request. No one in their right mind would just grant this wish to the son, no questions asked. No one would do that. No one then, no one now. You wouldn't do it. And yet the father does it. And that's shocking. That is in my opinion reckless parenting. Who would do that? Furthermore when you think about this parable another sort of mistake people make or you know, place they overlook is the tendency is to read through the parable and to think that all of these things are happening instantaneously. But let's just slow down for a second and think about this. We're talking about an agricultural culture, agrarian culture, okay? When the son asked for his inheritance, do you think in your mind, do you envision the father getting a shovel, going out in the backyard, digging a hole in the yard, and pulling a big, you know, 
pickle jar full of gold bouillon out of it and giving it to the sun and going? Because that's not what happened. The son's inheritance would have been a certain number of livestock, a certain head of cattle, a certain head of sheep, a certain head of goats, and a certain amount of land, so many acres of land. That's what the son inherited. The son would have inherited what had been passed down from generation to generation in the family. And the expectation would be that when the father dies and the two sons get their inheritance, that those sons would then take that that they'd inherited and they would use that to build their families on, right? But what we have here is a young man who takes in his inheritance and converts it into what the Bible calls reckless living. Now, I probably said something Wednesday night I shouldn't have said, and this is being recorded, so I'm not going to say the same thing I said Wednesday night, but... Do you think the young man went down to the red light district with his cow? Because he didn't. He had to liquidate all of these assets into money, into gold and silver. And that didn't happen in a day or two or three. He didn't just stick a for sale by owner sign out in front of his little, you know, five-acre plot over on the west side of the farm. And, you know, that's not how that happened. So there were some days that transpired while he liquidated all of these animals into money and probably sold property. And furthermore, who did he sell these things to? Would anyone have bought any of these things that didn't know who he was and where he got the things he was selling? No. So when he sold the land and the animals to whoever he sold them to, they would have immediately said, well, what's going on? Why are you uh, selling your dad's stuff? Because they, I know your dad because everyone in that community would have known each other, right? Therefore, and when you study Jewish culture, you find out that in the case where a father willingly, it has to be willfully, it cannot be pressured, willfully decides to give a son his inheritance prior to his death, the son would have to have the express permission of the father in order to sell any of the property. You understand what this means? Now you have a situation where the father gives the son his inheritance. The son then starts having a yard sale, literally, to which the father and the other brother and whoever else is in the family watches transpire. And everyone that comes to buy something sort of reluctantly and awkwardly is like, uh, you know, are, is this okay with your dad? To which the dad would have had to say, yes, it's okay. Now you're starting to feel the tension in the scenario. You start to realize a little bit of how painful this process would have been. So at this moment, a first century audience would have expected the father to flip out. And just severely disciplined this arrogant, insulting, utterly rebellious son. Perhaps even physically beat him. The, the people who heard what Jesus was saying would have been absolutely shocked. Because the 
the normal progression of how this would have went was when the son said something so utterly defamatory to the father, the father would have then called for the brother and the servants and they would have bound the son and beat him. That would have been the normal response to something so disrespectful, so out of uh, just, you know, inappropriate in every way, humiliating to the family, just the, the depths of all of the negative things that this creates for the family are just immense. But shockingly and unexplainably, the father gives the son what he asked for. He just hands it over. Thus, the first surprise in the story isn't what the son does at all. The shock of the whole thing is what the father doesn't do. That's what's shocking. Then there's the issue of the older brother. So it wasn't like, again, I think sometimes people may get in a hurry in Scripture and just sort of make things up as they go, I guess. But I think a lot of people imagine that the older brother is out in the field and comes back and it's sort of the first time he realizes all of this or something. I'm not really sure, but that's not at all what happened. None of this would have transpired without the older brother's knowledge. And, and all of this being sold and all this stuff was all would have involved him. Which now brings me to a new set of questions. Beyond all the de seeming deficiencies in the parenting style of the father, you've got this older brother who, my question is, what older brother doesn't, doesn't intervene and mediate between his, the father and the son and try to patch this thing up because this is going to adversely affect the older brother big time because the property that's going to be given to the younger brother is no longer usable by the family. So it's going to adversely affect the income of everybody and it's going to in particular affect the ability of the older brother because he's no longer going to have access to that, which he would have until his father died. But he does nothing. He doesn't protest it. He doesn't intervene. He doesn't it's almost as if he's happy about it because he's silent. And what unfolds as we go through the story is that we find that the father's relationship with the older son is no better than his relationship with the younger son. And that's why the older son doesn't do anything. He just lets it all sort of happen. So, chapter 2, a sinful rebellion, verse 13. Not many days later, so it would have been, I don't know, at least, it couldn't have been less than two weeks. It had to be at least two weeks. The younger son gathered all he had and he took a journey into the far country. You see, he, he, he gathered all he had because he sold everything. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. You see, you can squander gold and silver in reckless living. 
Verse 14, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him over the fields to feed the pigs. And there he was longing to be fed by the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. All right? So first of all, the word translated reckless living, that word, it means wild, abandoned, loose, without regard for rules or outcome. That's what that means. Just to be clear what we're talking about. Now, we know what some of the context of what reckless living is because down in verse 30, when the older brother comes into the situation, he says to the father, you know, this son of yours, the one who squandered all his property on reckless living and prostitutes. So we know that that was part of it. So we get a sense of just how reckless it was. And we also know a little bit about the nature of sin. And we know that sin uh, can, can bring pleasure for a season, can it? It can, it can lure you in and it can seem as if um, you are uh, getting away with it or that things are working out or that you're, you're living your freedom or your dream or whatever it is you want. But what, we, what life teaches us very quickly is that there is a, there's a lag between... Sin and consequences, isn't there? Rarely do the consequences immediately come. Normally, in the economy of God, sin is followed by consequences at some point in the future. Isn't that how that works? Of course that's how that works. That's how God's designed it. And so we need to be aware of that as we sort of think about how all of this goes down because this gets really tangled up in, in uh, uh, I think, in our culture today. There's a lot of confusion about the consequences of sin and how that relates to the believer or the saved person or repentance and things of that nature. So let's talk about it. Well, first of all, the son finds himself broke in a strange land and doing what he had always believed he would never do. Well, that's what always happens when we trail off into sin, right? Sin's always going to promise the world and deliver nothing. Sin will always lead to pain. But it usually won't lead to pain that day. It'll lead to pain one day in the future. That's how that goes. And so he finds himself in a strange land, in a place he never thought he'd be, doing things he never thought he would do. I mean, he's a Jew, and he's working with pigs. And it is the most repulsive thing that a Jew could do. I was trying to think of, because I, I spent all of this time, sort of, uh, just, that I didn't spend, I don't want you to think that I spent it, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I loved every second of it. I couldn't get enough of it. But as I was learning about just how repulsive a pig is to a Jew, there was only one, there's only one illustration that does it justice. And I have to admit, it does make me smile. It would be, it would be as if my wife were working on a cockroach farm. You've never seen a person 
so repulsed by something in all of your life. Like, it, if, if a fire-breathing dragon came into my house, it would not be as bad as one tiny cockroach. Okay? That's how a Jew feels about a, a pig. So here he is, stuck, hungry, alone. He separated himself from everyone he knows. He doesn't have any support system, no families there, no familiarity. He's in a foreign land. He's living among the Gentiles. He's gone to a foreign land. How do we know that? Because there's not pig farms in Jewish culture. That's a Gentile farm. And so he's living among the Gentiles. Why would you farm pigs? Nobody's buying your product. Right? you got to go to the Gentile land. So the principle here is simple, and it's that the way of the transgressor is hard, Proverbs 13. It's always hard. But let's be clear in how that it's hard. So where the confusion comes in is I think a lot of times what people maybe inadvertently project when they're talking about um, forgiveness is this, is that, that the, the to, especially to... Uh, somebody who, who doesn't have any sort of biblical framework or background, when they listen to people talk, I can see where they get confused because a lot of things people say sound like what you're saying is, is that you, when you come to faith in Christ, He forgives all of your sin and you don't say that, well, all of the consequences go away, but you don't say that they don't. And so, it sort of seems like, well, if, if the sin is forgiven, then the consequences go away. Then everything just sort of goes away, which is a problem because the consequences don't go away. And so when the consequences appear, there's confusion as to, and oftentimes you have people new and even people who have walked with Christ for some time who are sort of astonished at God, why are you doing this? To which God is in heaven saying, no, fool, I didn't do that. You did that. You see, when you repent of your sin, what is happening in the act of repentance? That is a spiritual act of, so the consequences of your sin spiritually are being removed. The blood of Jesus is removing the spiritual consequences of your sin. Correct? Yes. The physical consequences of your sin have nothing to do with salvation, relationship with Christ, or repentance. Correct. See, don't look at me like, <gasps> no, if you drink all your life and ruin your liver and get saved for the glory of God, you still have a burnt liver. Yes. Now, God can change that if He wants to, but typically He doesn't. And why? Because that's not His character and nature. Why? Because... If the, if the physical consequences of sin went away, what would you have? Every, God would be like the rich kid that everybody wanted to be his friend. Not because they liked him and wanted to be his friend. They just wanted the stuff he could give. Right? And God's not interested in that, is he? No. What God wants is people who love him for him. Right? Yes. And so you see that the physical consequences of sin play a very important role in God's economy. And if you remove that, it'd be a problem. So be clear when you're talking that you're not misleading people. Listen, you do stupid things, 
It's going to cause pain. Period. No matter how much you pray, no matter how much you come to church, no matter how much you read your Bible, no matter how much, it's going to cause pain. That's the way it's always been. That's the way it's always going to be. And so, we see this prodigal, chapter 3, the turning point. Verse 17, but when he comes to himself, he said, well, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread to eat? And, but I perish here with hunger. So I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as if I were one of your hired hands. Now, you know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of repentance. That's real, genuine repentance. That's what that is. And so what happens here is that a lot of people uh, take this phrase that he came to himself as an indication that he's reached sort of the bottom of the barrel in the physical circumstances in which he's in. Okay. I'm not going to say that that's wrong, but I'm going to say that to simply sort of leave it at that is very incomplete and misses the point. That's not the point. That's not the point at all. What you see here is an indication of genuine repentance in what is said and what is done. And, and this is what I believe that tells us. It, it tells us it's an indication that he woke up to his true identity and purpose. That when he comes to himself, it's not that he can't go any lower because believe me, he can go lower. You see, we use the terminology, we, you know, the bottom of the barrel, the end of the rope, all these things. But what is that? Because I don't know about you. I mean, you know, but I can remember what it was like being lost 27 years ago. And, and this is the way I would uh, say that. I wasn't at the bottom of my barrel until I was dead. So long as I was breathing air, there was more pain I could inflict upon myself and the people around me. And that's true about you and anybody else. So it's not that he hit the bottom of the barrel. I mean, I could solve his problem in five minutes. He works on a pig farm, man. Fry up some bacon. Like, you're starving. You're working among pigs. Hello, pork chop sandwich right there. Right? Well, why doesn't he do that? That's telling you something about him. That's telling you he knows there's food in front. Now, now Grant, I understand they're not his pigs, but trust me. Does that matter if you're starving to death? If you've ever smelled bacon... You're whipping your pocket knife out and some squealy thing's fitting to die. Right? But that's not what he does. Why? Because he's connecting with his identity. He, he can't eat those pigs. Now listen, you're saying to yourself, but he's working on a pig farm. Well, fine. You imagine anything you want to imagine. So you're telling me that if you were if you were starving and desperate and at the end of your rope, you'd work on a slug farm to make enough money to put food on the table to care for people you love or to take care of yourself so you could survive. But that doesn't mean you're going to eat a slug sandwich, does it? Well, no. 
Well, that's what he thinks about when he looks at a pig. But he's connecting with his identity, which is important information. It's not that he's at the, the, the bottom of the barrel. It's that he's, it's the moment he realizes, wait a minute, I wasn't, I, was, I haven't been raised for this. I don't belong here. This is wrong. This should not be. I have made a drastic error in judgment. He realizes that he wasn't created for immorality and idolatry, but that he was created by God and in God's image and for God. Because he still had many more steps he could have taken. He's already proven by what he's done up until this point that there was no limits to the the uh, drastic nature and inappropriateness of the things he was willing to do, right? Would you agree with that? Okay, then. So let's all agree that there were multiple steps he could have taken at this point to go further down the rope or further into the barrel. But he didn't. It's not the bottom of the barrel. It's the moment of awakening, spiritual awakening and repentance that this is wrong. This is wrong. He had come to grips with the reason why he was on this earth. That's what happened. He's sitting there by himself amongst the pigs, looking at this situation in the quiet. Probably up until the point he started working with these pigs, he was probably surrounded by a bunch of morons who were doing the same thing that he was. And so he was just having fun and not considering any of the consequences of anything. But when you get alone with yourself and you start sitting there thinking and looking and there's no one there to distract you and suddenly the reality of the course that you've taken starts to take effect on you. Yeah. Now notice his plan is a twofold plan. He, he number one, is going to repent. He, number one, says, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm unworthy to be called your son. And the second part of it is, is that his goal is to be accepted by the Father as a servant, as a hired hand, that his highest hope is that his father would receive him as a servant. See, the statement that I'm no longer worthy to be called my father's son indicates that he is genuinely heartbroken and has come to grips with the severity of his sin and the dishonor he's shown his father. So I wonder what uh, is transpiring here because he wasn't around the corner from his dad, was he? No, he's in a faraway country. He's in a different land, right? And so he didn't just, you know, whip out his iPhone, call an Uber, jump in the back of a Chevy Malibu and whip on down to dad's farm. That's not how that happened. So he gets up from the pig farm and he has to travel home. And as he's traveling home, what is he thinking about? What's going through his mind as he's walking back towards? He's, he's thinking about, what's my, how's my dad going to respond to me? What's his gonna, response going to be? Is he going to look at me and say, well, son, that's really too bad. You should have thought about that before you took your inheritance and went and did the things you did. You should have thought about that before you disgraced your family the way you did. Is his father going to... Uh, you know, not even let him on the property? Or is father going to uh, at least give him an opportunity to explain? Or what is the best scenario that the son can hope for and imagine as he's walking back towards the father? That maybe, just maybe, he could be a servant 
in his father's household. That is his highest hope. Now, it's a long shot. And he's no doubt in his mind going through all of the uh, sort of plan B, plan C, plan D scenarios in his mind. The second thing I think that's obvious about this is that the father obviously got wind that the son was coming. You see, I'd always previously imagined a scenario where the father's sitting on the rocking chair on the front porch and he's looking down this long, dusty driveway and at the end of the driveway he sees a figure and then he realizes it's his son. He jumps up off the porch and starts running down the driveway to meet the son. But then I realized that's not what happened. What happened was the father got word that the son was coming back. Somehow the father knew the son was coming back and the father went out to meet the son, not out in the yard, out at the outskirts of town. Look in verse 20 at the shocking reception. And so he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, meaning that's not in the front yard. So what I think happened was the father got wind that the son was traveling back and the father went and met him. And so while he's afar off, his father saw him and he felt compassion and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now as the father's walking to meet the son, what's the father thinking? What's the son going to say? How's this going to go down? I don't know what the father's thinking, but here's what I know. I know that what's about to transpire didn't just come off the top of his... This wasn't just a spur of the moment. You, you sort of sense now that this isn't... The father is prepared for this. You see, he sees him, he feels compassion, he runs, embraces him, and kisses him. And the son said to the father, Father, remember the son has a whole speech prepared, right? So the son says to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he can ever get to the part about maybe I can just be a servant in your house, the father cuts him off and says, that's it. And doesn't let him say another word. And then notice what the father does. As if the father has been preparing for this moment, the father calls for the servants, bring quickly the robe, put it on him, get the ring, put shoes on his feet. This is not a spur of the moment thing. The father has prepared to receive back his son. As he's moved to where the son is, he's sort of in his mind decided what he's going to do. Not knowing in a human sense what the son is going to say. Shocking. Shocking. Wouldn't any one of us, at the very least, in our heart, we would want to receive back the Son. In our heart, we would desire to be reconciled to our Son. And so even if in our heart and our mind we were thinking of all the ways we would, we would like to lavish things upon our Son if He came home, at the very least, wouldn't every one of us at the very least say, but first I want to hear what He has to say. Let me hear him out. Let me see if he's genuine. Let me see if he's real. Let me, let's just make sure that he's not just in a bind and coming back to inflict more punishment on us. Let's evaluate the situation. Let's wait him out a couple weeks. Let's be around him. Let's take him to church and let him talk to Pastor Tony, see what he has to say about it. Let's, we we got to get to the bottom of it. We're just not going to rush right in there and just, you know, and we're not just going to uh, just pretend like none of this ever happened. Nobody's doing that. But this dad is. 
He just starts rolling it out. One thing after another after another. Bring the best robe. Bring the ring. Bring sandal shoes for his feet. Get the fat of calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son who is dead and now is alive. He was lost and now is found. And they start celebrating. So the father, based on what the father says, the father clearly believes that while the son is gone, he's probably died. Right? He's probably gone. He's probably dead. Then he finds out he's not dead, but not only is he not dead, but he's coming home. So this father doesn't even wait for him to get there. He takes off after him, but he brings his plan with him in the process. Now, I don't have time to go into all the shocking things, but let me just give you a little taste of it. I mean, just on the surface, a wealthy Jewish man never under any circumstances would he have run in public. Never. Ever. It, that was completely inappropriate for him to do. No wealthy Jewish man is going to roll up his tunic and take off running and you're going to see that happen. Never going to happen. This father does. The social disdain that that picture would have brought in the first century. But not only that, this father, he throws caution to the wind as if to say, I couldn't care less what others think or say of me. It's my son. And he takes off running. His child has come home. We can't overlook the fact that the father doesn't wait for the son to return to the village. It's just shocking. It's shocking. And so he goes to meet him. And when he sees him, not only has he gone to meet him, but then when he sees him, he can't contain himself and he takes off running. And this is the father whom this son has insulted, sinned against, willingly and publicly. He runs to his son to receive him and to embrace him. He kisses his son in verse 20. It's a sign among Jews as reconciliation and forgiveness. It's almost unconscionable that in the father's eyes, the only fitting response to his lost child's return is celebration and gladness. Like, doesn't someone have to pay for what they've done? I mean, don't we have to, you know, don't we have to make them, I mean, as a good parent, isn't, isn't part of your job as a parent to at times make your child suffer? Like, shouldn't this child need to suffer for what he's done? I mean, come on. I 
I got up from my desk at one point in my studies and I, I went to my shelf where all of my parenting books are organized. And I started counting the dozens and dozens of Christian parenting books that I've read. And there's not one of them that would even come close to recommending any of the things that you've seen in this parable. None. In fact, they would all steer you the opposite direction. They would say this would be insanity. Chapter 5, a sibling's reaction. Verse 25, now the older son comes in from the field, and he came and he drew near to the house and heard the music and the dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him these, what these things meant. And he said to him, well, your brother has come home. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he was received his son back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered the father and he said, Look, these many years that I've served you, I've never disappointed you or disobeyed you. Uh, your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. And it was fitting to celebrate and to be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. Hmm. So now we have further pain and suffering of the father. The older son's behavior is just another slap in the face of the father. So after everything the father's been through, now he has this son who decides he's going to publicly humiliate his father as well. So he's refusing to enter in. So everyone's in there celebrating. He's refusing to come in. Now everyone can see that he's refusing to come in, which is a slap in the face of the father. At the very least, the son could have said, you know, Dad, I'm going to go ahead and come in, but tomorrow we're going to talk about this. I'm not happy about this or something. But to just stand outside and to sort of in protest to what your father has done, is just further humiliating anyone who would have seen any of this going on. If you'd have been the neighbor to the left or the right or across the street invited to this thing, you and me would have all been sitting there and we would have been saying to each other, that poor guy. How could someone have such rotten kids? They're horrible. There's got to be things about them we don't know. They're, they've raised some bad kids. It must be a reflection of some hidden secret thing that we don't know. That's what everyone would say. So here we have this sort of ironic reversal where the younger son responds rightly when he sees the father's love, but now the older son did not. The younger son, in his state of genuine repentance, is now able to receive the love of his father, which he previously couldn't receive, and the older son is now unable to deal with it. And so all the older son can do is uh, everything the older son says is a slam against the father. I have done right and you have done wrong. I did this and you didn't reward that. You've done for him and you didn't do for me. All the older son is doing is saying, you are a deadbeat father and done a terrible job of raising us. No wonder he's such a moron and I hate you too. 
That's what he's saying. And look closely at the father's response to all of these insults that are hurled at him by the older brother. The father ignores all the insult and the charge against his integrity and responds in love and concern. He literally doesn't even acknowledge all of the untrue things that have been said about him. He doesn't defend his character. He doesn't respond against it. He simply says, son, everything that I've had has always been yours. He reminds the son that he, I'm still your father and I love you and you don't have to worry. You're not going to lose your inheritance. Your brother's not going to take away your inheritance. What's yours is yours and you don't have to worry about that. Secondly, instead of, instead of denouncing him in public and perhaps even disciplining him, which he probably should have done to the first son, but he didn't do that, which is what everyone in the community would have expected, he entreats him, which is just mind-blowing. You know what that word means, entreat? It means to comfort. He comforts him. So the son publicly humiliates him, accuses him, and insults him, and then the father's response to all of this is to comfort him. On top of that, thirdly, rather than defend the false accusations against him, the father counters with generosity and promise. Do you see how totally crazy this parable is? how otherworldly it is, how unhuman, unnatural all of this scenario is. How I can see you in your minds trying to equate this with different scenarios that you've been affected by in your life and, and you're struggling in your heart trying to connect yourself to what's happening and hoping that you can do so. But here's the thing, you're utterly failing because you can't. Because this isn't about you. It's about the Father. You can't do this. So don't even try. Don't even try. You can't do this. You're incapable. Fourthly, he reminds his son that the return of the younger brother uh, does not in any way undermine or affect the older brother's inheritance. You see, that's what he means by all that I have is, is yours because you know what? All that he has left is his. He only has two-thirds of his estate left and it's all his. And it's all his and it's going to be there and it's going to be okay. And you're not going to lose it. Don't worry. He comforts him. So let's think about these principal points where the son who was lost and outside is now inside and the son who was inside is now outside or at least the son who is seemingly inside is now outside you see how we've sort of had this irony and of reversal the son who was disobedient and in is given this huge celebration and the son who appeared to be faithful is now alone. You see, the son that was disobedient, that was alone, is now in the celebration. And the one that was seemingly obedient is now alone. You see how they just traded places? 
The young son felt fortunate just to be able to be a servant in the father's house where the older son now resents the whole process and doesn't want anything to do with the house at all. The younger son, who had squandered everything in reckless living, confesses his sin. The older son, who seemingly was covertly, supposedly remaining faithful and frugal, all he can do is insist on his rights in the situation. So what does all this tell us about the father? Well, it tells us that we're not like the father. That's what it tells us. We're not like the father. The father's different than we are. And it's a good thing. Because if he wasn't, we'd all be in big trouble. Because the truth is, is that an audience like this, the vast majority of us in the room are older brothers. Almost every one of you is an older brother. And even if you used to be a younger brother, now that God's cleaned you up and fixed you up and made you look all good on the outside, you're an older brother. You see... It tells us that there's no sin, however deep, dark, and persistent, that can repel or drive God away from His children. None. Because believe me, if you could, then this would have done it. This is the epitome of inappropriateness. This is the epitome of, of, of having every right... To look out for yourself and to turn your back. But the Father doesn't do that. Notice how the Father doesn't just love the, the prodigal before he rebelled, but he loves him while he is in the midst of rebellion, and his love endured to the end of his rebellion. You see, what's the, the one consistent thing throughout the story is that the father loves the sons. And he unexplainably loves the sons even in the midst of the beginning of the story. And he even more shockingly loves the son in the midst of the horrific nature in the middle of the story. And his love endures to the end of the story. So we will mistakenly sometimes think that God loves us only as long as we remain lovable, which would be a horrible mistake. Because there's nothing lovable about either one of these two sons, and yet the father deeply, continuously, and passionately loves his children. Another mistake we make is to think that God will only love some future version of ourselves. You see, a lot of you who have grown up in a, uh, an environment of condemnation have perfected this sort of 
idea that there'll someday be this future version of you that God can love and that you're diligently working in the time at hand to get to that point so that God can love you, which is completely contrary to the grace of the Scripture. There's no future version of you. God doesn't, is not confined to time. When God sees you right now, He sees you in the totality of all that you've ever been, all that you are in this moment, and all that you'll ever be all at the same time. There's no past, present, and future with God. It's all right in front of Him. He knows everything about you. And so if He can love you now, there cannot be an instance in your life where He loves you any less. Because there's no surprises to an all-knowing God. And thirdly, our mistake is that we think that when we fail, God's love falters. Which goes back to what I was saying about the difference between spiritual and physical consequences. And we so oftentimes think that when we suffer the physical consequences of our actions, that God is somehow punishing us. When more often than not, the vast majority of times, it actually has nothing to do with God whatsoever. And that we're suffering the consequences that we brought upon ourselves, And that it has nothing to do with God's forgiveness of our sin. And it has nothing to do with God's love for us. Nothing. Don't you understand that? And so you cannot rightly see the Bible until you rightly see who it is that we're dealing with when we say God. We need to understand what is the character and nature of the, of the one the Bible is telling us about. The person that we're coming into relationship with. What is he like? And most importantly about him, how does he love? And how does his love work? And thanks be to God. He loves in a reckless, totally unhuman way. Because if he didn't, what chance would we have? So it is not to say that the, the, the learning and understanding of this parable, you cannot walk away from this parable and somehow think to yourself that God is in somehow... God's somehow pleased by or okay with the fact that uh, with sin and that that sin was all brushed under the rug and that, oh no, that young son spent the rest of his life living under the consequences of the decisions he made. That land didn't just come back. All those things didn't just materialize. I don't know all the details of what it all went, but here's what I do know. I do know that that's the way God's economy works. That's how it works in my life and that's how it works in your life. And you know what? Over time, here's what happens. We become thankful for those things, don't we? Because they're reminders to us of the foolishness of our past. We're grateful for those things. Because that's what keeps us from making the same mistake again, isn't it? Sure. You see, you have a conversation like this, and then you... What, what leaves... Me baffled and astonished is that anyone would ever walk away from the love of this father. 
Look at how he loves us. Look at how he loves you. Just because we have perfected a way in our own mind of convincing ourselves of all the deficiencies within us and how we have, we have come up with some human strategy for categorizing people into categories. And so you can walk into any room in any situation, any circumstance, and you can immediately sort of grade yourself and figure out where you fall into the realm of that. And so there are certain people that you know that are more spiritual than you and walk closer to God than you do. And there are other people that are less than you. And some of you find comfort in being in the middle. Some of you find condemnation in that and there's every variation in between and as we're doing all of this mental gymnastics to come up with all of these strategies to make all of this real what's really going on is that your heavenly father is loving you completely totally passionately and unbelievably through all of it he's unmoved by all of that he loves you he slaughtered his son for you and me fully knowing everything about us in advance. Just think that through. Think of the freedom that that yields. That's not going to make anybody walk out of here and go out there and, and, and feel a license to sin. It's going to drive you to Him is what it's going to do. Because the truth of the matter is that once you know Jesus, you're just like that younger son. It doesn't matter how hungry you get, you're not going to eat that pig. Once you know Jesus, there's only so far you can go. And you're coming home. Period. Thank God for the Father. So in the end, we must not forget that this parable isn't about either of the two brothers. Yeah, we can learn some, some minor principles. I would be super cautious about coming up with some parenting protocol based on this parable because you could get yourself in a whole lot of hot water. It's not about them. But there are some things we could learn. But it's all about the Father. A Father whose love and devotion and passion and affection for His children defies human expectations. It doesn't even make any sense. No rational person would love this way. No one. No matter how hard you tried, you couldn't do it. And nor could I. But you know what I can do? I can rest in someone's arms who does. That I can do. Because at the end of the day, it defies all human concepts of what love really is. All of them shatter at the foot of this truth. And the crazy thing is, is that this is just one little parable. All we did was scratch the surface and get a sniff. That's it. So be encouraged tonight as you leave here. That you may not feel it. 
You may not fully understand it. But if you're a child of God tonight, you are loved in such an extraordinary way. And that you didn't behave your way into this relationship and you're not going to behave your way out of it. There's nothing you can do to make him love you less and there's nothing you can do to make him love you more. He consistently loved the younger and older brother regardless of their actions. He never even flinched. Wow. 